three, two, one, and we're back, ladies and gentlemen, with another episode of the Bedroom to Boardroom podcast, where we delve into the stories of people from underrepresented backgrounds. The focus is always the guest, but I'm the host for today's episode, AJ. So without further ado, let's get started. We're here with with Rob. Um, Rob, how would you describe yourself, man? Uh, normal. Okay. Um, works for Seed Legals. Lived in London for the past five, six years. Uh, grew up in Jersey. Um, consider myself fairly laid back, carefree, nice guy. Hopefully. <laughs> nice. So for all of us who are like myself, we don't know where or Jersey is. Where is Jersey? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, Jersey's in the in the Channel Islands, um, which is part of the UK, uh, but it's actually located a lot closer to france so if you look at the map of europe um you you might know that england's above france mm-hmm. but then france kind of has like a, a really large bay and uh, the channel islands are all located in there so about 20 miles from the french coast you can see it from from uh, near my house actually uh, and we're about 100 miles from england and culture wise so from being in london for the last five or so years to being in jersey mm-hmm. for x amount of years prior to that what are the biggest cultural differences that you've experienced? Um, well, there's people other than white people. <laughs> it's, it's honestly a big one. Um, the Jersey population is almost almost totally white. Um, there is a lot more individuality amongst everybody who lives in London, um, in Jersey, obviously, because it's so small. Um, people don't really want to break the mould too much because then you know other people will talk. So seeing people be a lot more individual in London is, is nice, but otherwise a lot of things are the same. Um, people still like football. People still like going to the pub. Um, we're still English at the, at the end of the day. Is it the same laws as here in the UK or is tax more beneficial over there? Uh, so it's, it's actually technically different. Uh, we've got our own government and we elect our own politicians, so they set their own law, but um, most of the time we sort of follow, follow the English. Okay. And would you recommend it for someone to visit? Hundred percent, yeah, hundred percent. It's it's yeah. really cheap to get over. It takes about forty minutes on a plane, uh, especially in the summer. You get really good weather. Almost all of the beaches are, are basically deserted because there's so many of them and so few people on the island. So I think it's actually a hidden gem of the UK. I'd I'd recommend anyone anyone See, come. Why I mentioned that is right now with probably these travel restrictions due to be put in place post coronavirus, nobody's going anywhere <laughs> outside mm. of their their home countries. Mm. So. I've taken this as an opportunity to maybe learn a little bit more about the UK, see what's in my own back garden, so to speak, mm. rather than having my focus on you to go mm-hmm. to my home away from home, aka Portugal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but what, is that where you normally go? Oh, man, I love Portugal. <laughs> mm. I haven't <laughs> so, been. I'd like to go. It's uh, it's amazing. What can I say? Um, some people would say the particular areas that I like the most are very touristy. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the Algarves to some degree, um, Porto. Um, but I just I, I love them for a few particular reasons. One, it's the proximity to to, to the sea, so you get that really fresh seafood. Prior mm. to like my first time having like fresh seafood, I didn't know what I was missing. Um, it it really does taste different. You really can taste the difference. It's mm-hmm. it's, it's fresher. It's, it's it's more beautiful. There's particular brandies that you know are exclusive to Portugal, such as um, Macera Five Star Royal Brandy, which you know I've become a fan of. Um, and that's that's why the people there are 
it's one of the first places I've been to. So I managed to like travel a little bit over the last um, 16 to, to 24 months where it's going to sound really crazy. I didn't really experience like racism. <laughs> and oh, normally, yeah, normally as like a, yeah, normally as a black male, you come off the, 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 the airplane, you, you look around and everyone's looking at you. Now, my experience, it needs to be having, has an asterisk next to it for a few reasons. One of them is when I did go one of the times, I went with my friend who's six foot seven, six foot eight, six mm-hmm. foot nine. Mm-hmm. He only wears NBA apparel. <laughs> I happened to be wearing some kind of like Marseille apparel throughout mm-hmm. the whole trip. Um, I had some I know, footballers love to wear those like silly like MCM backpacks. I had MCM backpack. Yeah. Um, so to some degree, my experience was a bit different because people maybe think people thought we were athletes. But nevertheless, <laughs> like every time I've gone there, people have been polite. Another time I went, I went to see a bunch of politicians from both um, Portugal and um, one of the Nordic states and also uh, Sweden too. Went out to a dinner with 20 of them with the local municipality. It was myself. No way. What's the story of that? We got invited to provide workshops on youth empowerment. So Portugal are facing a very interesting problem. So they call like youth disengagement and also you know i think it's 30 to 50 percent and the number escapes me it's like a couple of months ago when i was actually at the, the workshop where the majority of their their workforce over the age of 35 they, they fear will be replaced by automation um so for example a lot of their jobs are like manual labor jobs so we went to a few different uh, manufacturers and some of the jobs you can quite clearly see uh, sure like when automation comes that job will be removed and that's one less person and one less family to, to be taken care of. So mm. right now there's that plus a youth and um, lack of engagement that youth are necessarily seeing like university as a viable option. So mm. we were tasked to go over there, deliver some workshops, try and incentivize and motivate youth um, to take more interest in their education. And it's quite interesting to see countries such as Portugal and um, that one Sweden, well, that one, that one state in the Nordics, I can't remember it was mm. also Sweden being very proactive and taking care of their youth and pushing youth engagement. And you come back home to London or the UK and it's like, ah, fend for yourself, guys. Mm. Do you think the uh, the Portuguese kids that you spoke to were motivated but just hadn't had somebody to point them in the right direction? Yes. So some of them were. So, so initially, it was, it was that language barrier to overcome. So mm. we worked hard to overcome it. Uh, mm. You know, popular dances like the world killing the world, that's how we broke the barrier. But what we did find is like, a few of them were very, very motivated. Um, they were very focused on making something of themselves, so to speak. Uh, but they saw that traditional method of going to university um, not being for them because they didn't quite know what they were interested in doing. And to some, some of the cases that parents weren't the most helpful in telling them or providing that expertise. Because the... The system, I think, is it's, it's it has a few errors and a few holes. The first being, like, you're 16, 17 years old. How can you know? I mean, in some cases, people may do. Like, you may be an example. How can you know what you're looking to dedicate the next five, six, seven years of your life studying at the age of 16 with such little experience of the world and such little experience of, of just ex- life in general? And in most cases, people are choosing topics and subjects based upon what they think they'll like, what their parents have done, what they think will give them a good job going forwards. And that's why you see many people like drop out in the very first of one or two years because you realize that, oh shit, 
this isn't really what I want. And I've been living my life based on the values of other people. Well, I think the way Israel did it is actually a really interesting, um, uh, different approach to the way we do it in the UK because they've got national service that you have to mm-hmm. do when you're 18. And so what that means is people go and do that after they leave high school. And then uh, what Jonathan was telling me, our colleague, um, is that after they come back from national service, they, they still don't necessarily go into education straight away. They'll get a job somewhere. And then at about the age of 25 is when they start making the decision to to do further education. And his argument is by then you've got a much clearer idea about what you actually want to do and you're a lot more mature in, in your approach towards it. So it's, I think it's a good I agree. argument. Because I'm in a stage where I... For some reason, whatever the dumb reason was, actually, I think I know it was job security. I decided to study accountancy. Um, mm. I took my A my A levels early, so from year twelve, we were approximately like seventeen, eighteen, till post graduation. So like uh, twenty one years old, my mindset was fixed on being an accountant. Like amazing, that was that was the goal. Tunnel yeah. visions on that. Then you get to a stage, or I got to a stage personally, where I got to a final four interview. And I was told I wasn't the accountant type. And then even prior to that, I had what I call like the, the finals um, crisis where I was like coming up to the end of my finals, coming up to the end of my exams and realizing, mm. oh shit, I actually don't like what I'm studying. Mm-hmm. <laughs> actually it's, it's actually a very, it's a very similar story in Jersey. Um, because our finance industry is the main industry in Jersey, it's taken over mm-hmm. from, from tourism and agriculture. The majority of jobs available are uh, as an accountant, or doing trust work. So we uh, see in our high schools kind of like a 50-50 where people will either not go to university and train as an accountant, um, but they do it through the companies as well. So they don't even necessarily go to university or do any other further education or you go to university um, and then do whatever you want to do. But a lot of people experience what you did as well, where they see the cash and the good opportunity in the good company, because we've got the big four hit there as well. Slightly different level of competition because it's, it's offshore. So there's less people wanting that job. Uh, but they go through all of the exams, qualify as an accountant or or don't even get that far and realise, I'd actually like doing this. What am I doing? It's just so boring. And in most cases, what do they pivot into afterwards? Um, well, it's difficult. It's actually difficult for, for people in Jersey because, as I say, it's so dominated by finance. Often you, you get people who are just sort of stuck in a in a bit of a rut where they're comfortable with the salary that they're earning, um, but they just don't enjoy the job. Mm. I have that. So for some reason, I know the reason, so that's not quite accurate. There's a dream, a fallacy sold to like young um, Afro-Caribbean Londoners or even I think it's just across the UK of like going to university, studying something like finance related and then going into finance because that's where the big bucks are made. Mm-hmm. And typically for most of these financial roles, they have maybe, you know, two, three, four week internships, maybe like insight days. And that's all the exposure they get into these roles. And as you can imagine, in that very short time frame, these companies are portraying themselves to be the most progressive, the best companies mm. in the world. And people mm. have, you know, fallen for that hook, line of sinker to people getting into these industries and realizing, oh shit, like they're, they're stuck now. The money's great. Like they maybe wouldn't go anywhere else and receive like, the mm. same salary, particularly mm. as like relatively junior roles, uh, but they hate what they do. And it really like mm. drains the life out of them. So much so I have some friends who, they plan their year in the following manner. For like six to eight weeks, they just like put their head down and just grind away at their finance yeah. roles. 
yeah. then you go on holiday for like a week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, back. it's do it's that. done on a more kind of micro scale in Jersey, but uh, mm. I mean, it's just that old cliche living for the weekend. But I mean, they'll, they'll just slog through five days of, of transferring money around and, and not enjoying it, just to just go big on the weekend and then just repeat that. So, how did you manage to find something that you're interested in or buy? Um, sort of by accident. Um, my first decision was was really pragmatic, like yours. Um, the subjects that I was good at at school were English and history, and kind of the, the subjects you needed to write essays for. And so that it was more of a process of elimination, really. Um, my dad is a is a doctor. If you didn't, if I haven't told you already, so naturally you would have thought I would have gone towards that, but I just wasn't very good at the sciences or anything. So that wasn't an option. So then I was thinking, what what do I do? Um, looked at what subjects you could get into at university for the subjects I was good at at school. Law seemed to be the most useful um, in terms of the knowledge you learn, but also just as a discipline. And and obviously you can enter it as a profession as well. Uh, so it just made sense for me to choose that. And how have you found it since? Brilliant. Yeah, brilliant, actually. Oh, wow. um, there's, there's a lot of people who would argue that doing a, a law degree as your undergraduate degree at university is uh, not necessary because mm-hmm. obviously you can do your law conversion and then the argument goes that then you can do something you actually want to do. But I'd say that I think a lot of people sh- sh- would enjoy doing law um, provided you give it the time it kind of requires. Um, first year was difficult for me because uh, I came into first year of university with the same kind of work ethic and um, level of motivation as I had in my final year at school, which to be fair, probably wasn't actually that much. Mm-hmm. I mean, in hindsight, it obviously wasn't because I didn't do very well in my first year exams at all. And as a consequence, I thought law was difficult and I didn't enjoy it as much. Um, but once you actually sit down and give it the time it needs and, and you get through your courses and you start understanding it on a, on a kind of uh, broader level, um, I think it's really fascinating. And I think it's, it's also like uh, fantastic reading judgments um written by judges about really important cases that change the way society is uh, written by some of the smartest people in the country and just reading how they make arguments is something that really fascinated me so i'm i'm ignorant to, to law as a whole do you have one example of a most recent um outcome that you think has fundamentally changed how we interact with the, the world from a legal point of view mm-hmm. um well i mean I mean, the, the one that got all the press attention recently was um, Gina Miller 2, uh, which is the case about whether Boris Johnson uh, was acting within, probably butchering actually the, the ratio, but in summary, whether he was right or wrong to postpone Parliament in order to get Brexit through. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, they decided that it was it was illegal for, for him to do that. But if they had decided the other way, then he might have got his way. We might have a different Brexit to what, to what we had, um, to what we have now. Um, but I mean, there's loads. Like uh, the one that weirdly struck is coming to mind now. R.V. Brown uh, was a case about uh, gay men uh, performing like sadomasochistic acts on one another. Uh, but it was talking about whether you're allowed to give consent for somebody to harm you, and they decided that you're not. Um, wow. Whether whether you consent to it or not. Um, you know, judgments judgments change change things constantly, um, and it's kind of what I'm hopeful to get into um, when I get more 
experienced as a barrister is that you, you might get lucky and you might have a case that goes to the Court of Appeal and then it's an interesting point of law that they've not really considered and then it ends up going to the Supreme Court and then the Supreme Court might decide to change the law and then you've you've had a, a really big influence on, on something that will have an effect for, for many years to come. So that's, so why I like accountancy is in most cases, I mean, outside of creative accountancy, which is typically frowned upon, um, unless you are a tax accountant or tax advisor, then we're all good for that, is the black or whiteness, the binariness of accountancy. In most cases, it's either X or, or Y, yes or no, black or white, and it's very, very little scope for ambiguity, apart from if you're looking to do some creative accountancy. Um, it seems with law, it's the opposite. Everything seems to depend upon particular variables. Um, is that one of the things that, that's drawn you towards it? Um I think the space to be creative in the interpretation of words is something you, you can do as a lawyer. I think that's, mm-hmm. that is a, a pleasurable aspect of the job. Um, but it sort of depends. It depends what context you're in. If it's, if it's advisory, then um, there's less ifs and buts and it's, I think you should do this. Uh, but if it's, if it's litigation and, you, and you're in court, then sort of anything goes. It's, you, you find the best argument you can to try and persuade the judge to see your point of view. But you don't know which way it's going to go, but I, I think that's a really exciting aspect of, of the bar anyway. Okay. So on your LinkedIn, it says you are a future pupil barrister at 42 Bedford Row. What does that mean, Rob? <laughs> well, I mean, hopefully it's still true. I'm not sure yeah. whether they've not actually spoken to me oh, wow. <laughs> about, whether, about whether coronavirus is going to... Uh, um change things the website um, says it's business as usual so that's yeah uh, and that's 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 what i'm believing at the moment as well um i'm uh, i am very confident it will be fine but um so basically what it means is they've offered me pupillage mm-hmm. which is a, a fancy word for apprenticeship basically so they they've offered me an apprenticeship with their chambers which is the word for a collection of barristers mm-hmm. um to essentially do work shadowing for six months uh, so they teach you the ropes um what it is to be a barrister they teach you tips about how to become better at advocacy and you, you basically learn for the best um and then for the second second six months of your pupilage you then are set off on your own uh, to do your own cases in court uh, which is probably going to be a very daunting experience for me uh, but a very exciting one um and the general gist of it is you get very simple cases at the beginning so lots of road traffic accidents or uh, perhaps some like unpaid wages claims or small employment cases um and then as you become more comfortable um being in court and and with your practice areas then slowly you just become more and more experienced and take on more and more difficult cases so you mentioned they they offered you i'm sure there was a quite stringent recruitment process to get to this point do you mind providing some clarity sure um I can give you the long version of the short version. I don't know what you prefer. Let's do the long. It's informative as possible. Let's do it. Okay. So the long version is that you have to decide you want to be a barrister uh, early, I think, because uh, from the moment I made that decision to the moment I was offered pupillage was was Mm -hmm. probably about four years of, of, of determination and doing things to try and make that a reality. Sure. Um, so first and foremost, you need, you need good grades. Um, that's not saying I have absolutely incredible grades. I have a two-one. I, do, I don't have a first. Yeah, you're one percent off a first. It's, 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 yeah, yeah. I was I was close to first. Yeah, um, I was going to keep that one quiet. But, um, 
Um, but yeah, so a lots of people think you need a first to, to become a barrister, and lots of people think you need to go to Oxford or Cambridge to become a mm-hmm. barrister, and, and neither of those facts are true. Uh, I am I didn't go to Oxford or Cambridge, I didn't get first, and I have been offered pupillage. That might be a slightly different story if you want to go to the top, top commercial sets where you're going to be a millionaire before you're 30. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, that's kind of fair enough because they'll probably be picking the two or three smartest you know, minds in the, in the country. Mm. Um, so, but it, it, the point still stands. You need solid grades. You need to go to a good university. Um, I, I've not seen anybody who didn't go to a Russell Group University get pupillage. So that's, that's kind of the threshold, I'd say. Um, it's a little bit of a shame that, that they, they look at that, um, but but that is just what they look at. There are a few sets that are, are attempting to become more progressive recently mm-hmm. and they do blind applications. Um, so if you if you are one of those people who who hasn't gone to Ross Green but still wants to become a barrister, I'd, I'd pay really close attention to the sets that are doing that kind of application process. Um, but once you've got your grades uh, sorted the next thing you have to do is is basically show that you actually want to be a barrister rather than uh, just wanting to do it because you get to wear the gown or wanting to do it because you think you're going to earn lots of money or, or just to have the title um they quickly see that if any of those things are your motivations that you're not you're not going to be a good barrister and they, and they won't take you on so in order to prove that you actually want to do it you have to do things that give you skills that would make you a good barrister. Sure. Um, so one of those things is debating. Um, universities run lots of competitions. There's competitions mm. to do it absolutely everywhere, in fact. Oh, so Tudor's educated me on the whole debating scene. Man. I, I, I exactly, know, I yeah. Tudor has gone <laughs> above and beyond, actually, oh, wow. yeah, what, what they would want uh, as, a, as a debater. Yeah, but he's he's travelling the world doing that, that kind of stuff. So the opportunity is definitely there. Um, or you can become a a bit more specialized in the kind of experience that you do and do a thing called mooting mm-hmm. which is basically the closest equivalent to being a barrister that there is without actually doing it for real life i guess volunteering as well but i'll get onto that but what that is is you you're given a, a brief and a, a fake set of facts and you have to create a 15 minute argument to persuade your judge that's in front of you that that you, you should win and you get points for advocacy for um you know, speaking quality. I can't actually remember the other criteria, but um, that is a really good thing to do because it, it shows that you've tried what being a barrister is like and mm-hmm. you can say that you've enjoyed it. And if you do well, you can say, I'm also very good at it. Um, so that that's another thing you should think about. Volunteering is, is looked upon very favourably, whether that's just general volunteering for, you know, the elderly or doing whatever, um, or doing volunteering in a legal context and working for any of the legal charities that are in the UK um, doing advisory work and sometimes some advocacy as well uh, on behalf typically of people who who wouldn't be able to afford legal representation for themselves. Uh, that's another really good thing to do because um, it shows that you're you're good with clients and again it shows your commitment to to the bar. Um, but basically the, the, the problem in a nutshell is you have to persuade them that you want to be a barrister and that you'll be a good barrister. Um, but what they love, because lawyers generally are all about evidence, uh, is proof of those sure. things. You can't just say that you've wanted to be a barrister since you were 10 sure. years old. Four years old. Uh, you need to show that. <laughs> okay. And I guess to some degree that's in most cases similar to most industries. So even when an accountancy, like one of the questions they ask you is why do you want to be an accountant? And like 
such a simple question, but I think at the same time, it's a very, very deep one. And because yep. in most cases, you're saying your job security and a decent salary is, it won't get yep. you through to the next stage. Yeah, well, uh, it's it's funny because uh, I don't think you should hide away from those facts either. I think, um, I mean, it's not it's not as applicable for a barrister because I'd say job security is actually not not something you get being a barrister yeah. because you're self employed and you don't know when the work's coming in. Um, but saying that you you know you want to be fairly compensated for the amount of effort you've put into going into the pro- profession that you want to enter is is fair i think i think i think you'd be lying if if you'd say that wasn't at least a factor in your decision might not be the 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 thing that you lead with because there's plenty of other reasons why why you'd want to go into any particular profession but um i don't think there's any harm in mentioning that either so i've mentioned that in different interviews maybe for accountancy and other roles and you can see the body language of the interview mm-hmm. and the upside the desk change um mm-hmm. and, and not for the positive either no <laughs> like, I, wow, I, I'm, I'm with so you honest. because i think I think what they're saying or thinking is like, well, there's so many other things that you could have said mm. um, if 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 you've gone straight to what I'm going to earn. Um, sure. Why why is there not anything else? You know, that's probably what it makes them think. And also, it's the level of so to some degree, um, you know, I I describe like work for companies in some cases like plantation work, um, which you know, like and that's probably not a fair representation because you are in most cases. Um, compensated for your work but again for example sales for example um given a salary um often times you get the opportunity to make a little bit more via commission if your main motivation to join in this company this role here is the package you receive um what is to stop you from jumping ship when a more juicy prize um appears right in front of you and in that case i guess from an employee employer point of view that's where the the pushback, that internal gut feeling goes, ah, shit, salary, when you hear somebody say that, because now you realize that this person, in essence, is a mercenary, and they will go to whoever pays them the highest salary. And that may not be us right now. Mm-hmm. And I've had, you know, companies that we, we both work for mention this to me too, uh, in a bit more polite ways than I just articulated. No, no, it, it makes sense. I, I might think it myself if 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 I was doing an interview and, and then that is what the person in front of me led with, I'd, I'd wonder, you know, do you care about the actual company? Um, yeah, do you agreed. think people care about companies when they apply? Um, yes, not always, no. I think they can, though. It depends what the company's doing. Um I also think it's more of a bonus rather than the main motivation for joining. I think personally, anyway, I look for what skills I think I will be able to develop in a role. That's really sure. important to me. Um, and then if within that role, it's also doing something good. Like Seed Leaders is actually a good example. You know, you, we're, we're helping ambitious people raise money to to try and realize their dreams <laughs> in a cliche kind of way. Mm-hmm. Um that is nice. So it is, it is even nicer working here. But um, was that why I wanted to join? Not really, no. I've had, so I actually, I think it, it varies upon whether one, you're looking to work at a startup, where you're looking to join a, you know, faceless multinational organization. And I think for a startup, believing in the vision and liking the company, are I think a bit more important variables when you decide what job to work at. For example, C-Legals, I actually believe in the vision. I needed mm. some of the products and services like the summer before I joined the company. Whereas, you know, multinational organizations I worked at like Capita, shout out to Capita. Mate, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> prior to the interview, I did not know what procurement was. 
Mm. I did not know what consultancy really was. I had no idea about Capita's vision. Didn't care. I didn't really give a shit. Just saw a salary. Working from home three days a week. Love that. Central London. Get to wear um, a camel camel overcoat. Briefcase. Love that. And, and there we go. I was I, I was sold. Now, yeah. in the companies where I've actually believed in the vision and the brand a little bit more, I have found there's been a direct correlation between how hard I'm willing to work and oftentimes tenure too. There's a positive correlation between those two. Whereas for other companies, you know, when you see another offer, oh, wow, jumping ship super quick. Well, I think I think what's nice as well, it's kind of like an unintended consequence, but if you have a company with a, a good ethos and is actually doing something um, useful to many, um, I think it does attract a certain type of person, which means that the culture is nice. Um, mm-hmm. Like I think, generally speaking, the 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 type of person that works at seed legals is a is the person i like and get on with um yeah yeah no problem aj but um i'm not sure that would be the case if i was working somewhere where i didn't actually uh believe in what they were doing i agree so on the on the the point of culture what we have seen is a new generation like quasi millennials which i fall into who are prioritizing different things when it comes to their employment life. And one of those things is culture. One of those things is like work-life balance. And it's so interesting seeing traditionally maybe um, uh, more old-fashioned industries having to keep up with this brand new batch of graduates. So Mm -hmm. I spent the majority of my summer uh, cold calling relatively like small size companies, zero to 50 headcount, having these conversations with like founders or C-suite executives. And many of them are just clueless. Many of them are just clueless as to how they like maintain, how they keep, how they retain like millennials uh, because mm. their idea of, you know, young people wanting work-life balances and caring about like culture and values is not what they're used to. Their idea is you come to the job, you slug it out, job for life apparently where you magically retire and you get this golden watch at the end of the 40th day mm-hmm. <laughs> just beyond your retirement party. And I think mm. I'm liking the change. Um, I think some companies are a bit slow to... Um, to adapt and i think some companies also go a bit too far and beyond like mm. some of the things oh, yeah facebook and facebook hq is it's just a big playground in essence <laughs> I, I i agree with you actually um yeah and i'd love to say that i was different and not a stereotypical millennial mm-hmm. but i think based on the evidence clearly i am because i mm. think i've resisted uh sort of regimented working hours my whole working life um by choosing working for a really small startup at seed legals which gives you all the the kind of startup trappings you'd expect and then mm-hmm. I'm, I'm moving into a career where i'm self-employed so although it will be a lot of hours they'll be at my uh choosing um and i don't i don't know why i've chosen that i don't know whether it is because of the hours i don't know but i, I don't know i mean I've, I've spent a lot of time in solicitors firms and i've seen people uh, moaning about having to stay just to show your face um so maybe that's had an influence on me I've had that too, where <laughs> you don't want to be the first person in the office to leave. So you just sat there looking around, like waiting for the first person to leave, waiting for, waiting for, waiting for the director to leave. Always a bit shocked that people still listen to me. <laughs> anyway, that's the end of part one. Stay tuned where we'll be dropping episode two um, or part two in a few days.